You are listening to the Pop Culture Salvage Expeditions with your friends, Steve <laughs> Lambert and Pat Cerrito and Steve Duncombe. Get ready to rumble. <laughs> what do you guys think? I tried a more aggressive. Yeah, it was good. Yes. You kind of lost one. it on with your friends. That, yeah, it was, was kind of working, but okay. Okay. I mean, what do they call? What do you call your colleagues? Your comrades? With my colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> Dastardly Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping Dorito. <laughs> Jumping Pat Dorito. Look out. With her acrobatics and her dancing. The Zumba champion. <laughs> so last night, we are excited because we... You probably figured this out yet. Yeah. <laughs> we went to WWE Smackdown in Newark, New Jersey at the Prudential Center. My first time... That's the most wrestling I've ever seen in my life combined. Yeah, I think I think yeah. for me too. Oh, yeah. my first time. I didn't know what to expect. What did you expect? I expected a lot of frat guys. Really? And like adult guys. Yeah, that's okay. what I was expecting. I but really I had no idea what what to expect there. Hmm. And and what was the first thing that you saw that really was like, hey, man, this is not what I expected? Kids. Yeah. That was the first thing I saw. Little little kids uh, going in with their parents. And I, I immediately relaxed because I thought, oh, okay, this isn't going to be too scary because little kids are going there. Worst case scenario, when you say scary, what did you expect? Scary, I expected, you know, I, I don't like seeing violence. Uh-huh. On, right. uh, so I, I didn't want to have to have my eyes closed oh. for most of it and just cringing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I expected a lot of eight-year-olds just screaming. Like, like uh, I've never been to a monster truck rally either, but I think it's, <laughs> I imagine a similar thing, which is a bunch of eight-year-olds going, yeah, get up! You know, like with their tiny voices and and dads like sipping a, a, a Budweiser. I think I expected it to look more like it did on TV. Ah, right? and and I think what was kind of kind of interesting is it's like we saw the staging of what would later be sort of pumped up for television. Yeah. So anyway, I'm going to give my little background on wrestling. Here. Sure, sure. Because you did your I, research. I'm, I'm the history professor, so I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm the one who goes to Wikipedia 30 minutes before we record this. Um, so anyway, wrestling, uh, professional wrestling, and this is different from amateur wrestling or Greco-Roman wrestling or sumo wrestling, which actually is real. Uh, professional wrestling, <laughs> I, I hope we're not doing a spoiler here, but it's not real. It's a performance. Uh, and it's been, it started out in the mid-19th century in Europe um, as, as a performance. When it comes to the United States... It comes as part of sideshows and carnivals. And so it's really linked to sort of entertainment. It's linked to the whole idea of like bunkum and ballyhoo and, you know, the what mermaid. Are, what are these words? These are like 19th century words. <laughs> okay. For, for like things like the Fiji mermaid, half woman, half fish, or half oh. monkey, half fish. You know, the yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. P.T. Barnum style, like, is it real? Yeah. Is it not real? Like that's the world that professional wrestling the comes strong out man of. yeah exactly and and the you know the person who contorts themselves in knots but also very much about can you believe what you see in front of your eyes and mm-hmm. that that's part of that whole nineteenth century mm-hmm. uh, circus stuff which it comes out of um, it's now of course huge business as is everything 
It uh, World Wrestling uh, Entertainment, which used to be World Wrestling Federation, is the biggest of all of these. Uh, and it holds 300 events a year, broadcast about 36 million viewers in more than 150 countries. So this is huge. And, and it's been part of TV entertainment ever since the beginning of TV in the United States. Um, when TV mm. first starts out in the United States, of course, they don't know what to do with it. Like, what do we put on television? And so the two first things on television are Broadway theater shows and professional wrestling. No. Oh, yeah. Really? So the, not the high that. and the low, yeah. And that's that not even from was... Wikipedia. That's that's actually from me being a media studies professor. Okay. So. But uh, weren't the first TV stations national, or was it, did it start local? They are national. Okay. Uh, but this was national entertainment. It would, be, it would be essentially what was being shown on Broadway, and they would just literally put up a camera, and they'd be really stagey blocky. Um, and the other thing would be professional wrestling. And professional wrestling was big enough at that moment to actually, you know, command center stage. And then came the quiz shows, and then so came things that the you built 40s. for TV. This is the 30. 40s and the 50s, not 30s. Wow. Yeah, really post-war. So, the thing I know is that there used to be, it was called the w, World Wrestling Federation because it used to be a bunch of local yeah. leagues. And okay. so there was, I know Memphis style was a thing, and then there was like, Detroit and that Midwest and then there was East Coast and that they were like it was much smaller and more local and they would televise those on local stations like you'd have like the local bowling tournament or you know whatever would happen on Saturday morning yeah that might be the case actually too in the 1950s and you're right is that the World Wrestling Federation is really the group that starting in 1952 takes all of these and they, they they were like fiefdoms, like yeah. the Memphis fiefdom. I think they went up to the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> and, and brings them all together, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, so they're yeah. like the AFL. Yeah, the the AFL or like the (laughs) the Standard Oil Company, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, And there still are sort of small independent shows that are either more violent or more funny or take aspects of it. And, you know, so you have a mainstream national level and then you have these sort of smaller upstarts. Yeah. And can I ask, when did women start, uh, were included in a wrestling? Was that from the beginning or? That I just don't know. We're going to have to count on one of our listeners to tell us. As you mean fighting. Yes. Yes. Or quote unquote fighting. (laughs) Quote unquote fighting. (laughs) You know, um, there was a big controversy about sumo being fake recently. And it made me realize like all sports, like there's always this doubt of whether or not it's being fixed or drugged or whatever. And so like how far removed is wrestling from baseball or, you you know, football or take your pick. Well, it might be just it's more honest about it. Yeah. Um, but let, let's paint a picture for people who have never been to a SmackDown. Like, what is yeah. it like? And there are two parts. There's the TV show part yeah. because mm-hmm. they, they aired what we saw on the, at least their network and it airs on television. But what we saw was an arena show uh, in, in the Prudential Center, which is where some sports teams play. Mm -hmm. I I don't. Oh, the Devils, the New Jersey Devils, not a sports fan and big concerts. And it was it wasn't packed, but it was pretty full of the audience. There was like just a mixture of everything. It was incredible diversity, plenty of African-Americans, whites, uh, Latinos that I saw in the audience. And then it was family filled. I was I am still my mind is boggling around that because it was a Tuesday night as well. 
And so I kept saying, why are these kids up so late? It's a school night. <laughs> I it was still a lot don't of, understand. Uh, father, son. Yeah. No, <laughs> and, and a lot of mother, son. Yeah. Like moms yeah, bringing yeah, yeah. their, you know, this was a promise that the, their sons wanted to do this. If you get good grades. Yeah. I didn't see many mother-daughter. No. Bonding. No. 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 Or father-daughter. And then there were, yeah, there were just guys. Like, D- I saw a dudes. guy in a business suit come yeah. walking down, you know, I guess it, it seemed to be alone. Yeah. And and I guess that's what kind of amazed me the most. So over the course of the evening, we saw probably, what, six bouts, seven bouts? I don't know. I lost track. It was yeah, a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. Yeah, just a lot. And they're, they're again, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but they're not real. Uh, they're, they're, you <laughs> I know, think there was a lawsuit, and this was publicly stated sometime in the 90s, where, like, they had to say, yeah, it's fake. And and it affected nothing. Right. No one cared. <laughs> well, this, this, ratings didn't go down. Right. And this is the thing that what amazed me the most about it is that so we see these eight matches, and we'll talk a little bit later about how they there's the buildup of the characters mm-hmm. and that there's a drama there. But what really struck me is that even more so than on the television is you know that it's fake. And so if you're a seven year old kid there's a sort of fantasy that you can let yourself go in. Well, maybe it's not fake. It is fake. It's far away. I don't know. I could do this with my friends uh, on the couch and, right. you know, and it's not fake for us and so on. But what amazed me is like the 40-year-old men that were there without kids and sat through two and a half hours of <laughs> matches where people would just you know, run into each other or they would slap their hand before they slapped the person or they <laughs> pound the mat. And it was really fake. And so what do, you, what do you both think about why is that entertaining? As a 40-year-old person yeah. who was watching this for the first time, I was watching it and the first thing that came to my mind was, oh, wow, all my years of cartoon watching has led up to this moment. And for me, it was just, it was like reminiscent. So I got into it because of that, like all that cartoon violence that I saw as a kid and young adult. Um, and it just made sense within that. And I found it very entertaining in that way. It was Right. It was Bugs Bunny. It was, you know, it was like all the characters, itchy and scratchy, uh, coming together (laughs) in this. Yeah. In this arena. And it was I found myself laughing at it. It was just like I was laughing so hard throughout the entire evening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the idea of it being fake and real is really uh, only matters to outsiders. Mm -hmm. It's not a. It's not an issue to people that are into wrestling. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it's like a distraction from what it, it is actually about. And yeah, the violence. Also, yeah, it's not really violent. Like there was nothing. <laughs> I'm also, as I've gotten older, like less and less or, or more affected by seeing violence. Mm-hmm. And I had none of those twinges there. You know, there was, you know, maybe someone might have gotten stung, but like nobody has bruises from the week before, you know, so (laughs) they're they're clearly not really getting hurt. And you can see them not even making contact, but it's like that combination of cartoons and the Three Stooges and um, Halloween at some points. You know, it's like, I know this is supposed to be scary and, but you know, it's, it's all in good fun and it's all, I think, really partly speaking to a younger audience but then also there's a whole tradition of 
of the history of wrestling that they're playing with and the moves and the and the acrobatics right. and stuff, right? It's, and and so for the older folks, because we should say that this costs about fifty dollars per person to go, so it's not something that's really cheap to do. Yeah. So the the older folks there, they're actually liking it because they're seeing moves that they've seen before, the characters they've seen before, sort of a drama that's playing out. It's nobody really cares who wins and loses in terms of skill, but more who wins and loses in terms of this sort of drama of wrestling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the and the part we weren't seeing was the as as we've learned is the arc of the narrative that goes across the season right. which Pat and I were talking about is much more like what would draw you into a soap opera or even a series like Empire mm-hmm. um over the course of weeks is to see like oh what's he going to do now you right know? right and it's also for me thinking through the audience because I was looking at the audience probably as much as I was looking at the fighting uh going on and the question around well, what would compel someone to spend $50 when they can get this on television for free, right? And it it mm. was that sense of, you know, even though it wasn't as dramatic in person, I think what was there was, right, the audience and their reactions and how they were yelling. I don't know if that makes it to the television uh, um production but the audience was having a back and forth with mm-hmm. the wrestlers as well so i could see that as being a motivation or a reason or just being around a crowd of people i mean there are just so many people there it wasn't uh completely packed but that was a huge stadium and there were at least a thousand people yeah i mean the, going back to the audience is that each of the wrestlers or the wrestling crews had some sort of trademark uh, move that they would make or a sign that they would make to the, the audience. The Superman punch. The Superman, Superman punch. punch. <laughs> or, you know, my favorite, the Luce Dragons had this, you know, moving their hands up and down. And then and everybody in the audience would do that at the same time. You can't see me there because it's a podcast, but I'm moving my hands up and down. Um, and that everybody in the audience would know that that was coming and that that was kind of part of the fun yeah well, and all the catchphrases too yeah. right the, oh. jack swagger had his uh yes. we the people and we he would stand people. up on the they would stand up in the corner of the ring look at everyone and they put his hand on his chest and everyone would yell we, we the people. people which we didn't figure out what that meant <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of all he did but um but yeah they had those the and the usos would be yeah. like Ooh, so, ooh, so. <laughs> and you learn the chants and everyone would yell them and stuff. Exactly. So there was that participation. But I think also the excitement of seeing a live TV show being made. Yeah. Because if you watch it, uh, it's way more exciting than it is actually being there. There's a lot of like, it's like going to, the times I've been to a football game that's televised, you know. Football is is um, built around a television audience. So there's commercials and there's all these timeouts and stuff that are basically to make space for ads yeah Mm -hmm. yeah what was your favorite dramatic moment in the all of the matches because we should say that there's all of these matches right but there's the matches are built around two characters or a group of characters there's another group of characters one of which is good one is which is evil sometimes good wins sometimes evil wins Mm -hmm. yeah um and there's arcs and stories that travel the whole season but even if you've only been to one you can have different characters you like different characters right. you don't like so who was your favorite characters what was your favorite dramatic moment so for me um 
all the fighters, before they came out, they would have a little video of them and then have them enter into uh, the audience. Uh, but my favorite moment was when, uh, and I'm forgetting what his title is, but when Roman uh, Reigns yeah, um, Reign. came out, he came in a different exit that was amongst the audience, that was through the people. He's a man of the people. And that was, because everyone was getting excited yeah. and everyone was wondering where he was going to come yeah. Yeah. Uh, into the stadium. And then uh, when he started walking down, you know, you could see people were grabbing and touching him and he took time to, like, shake hands and say hello. And he had uh, his championship belt over yes. his shoulder. Yeah. He had his big belt um, over his shoulders and he just made the best entrance into the ring. And this was also following, uh, I guess, the night before or a couple of days before he had did this um, uh, fight in <laughs> oh, the ring where amazing. he fought the owner of the Vince w- McMahon, Vince McMahon, <laughs> the owner of the WWE, who was trying to fire him, who was trying to fire him. And he had to win the fight or get fired. Right. And so he fought another fighter another wrestler, and then after he was done, then he gave it to Vince McMahon, and he... (laughs) But think think about this for a moment. What other popular culture would you have a wrestler or an employee punch out the CFO, (laughs) and he really is the chief financial officer, the C- chief uh, operating, chief officer. operating officer. Uh, I mean, it's a real person. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he punches him out. And part of the drama is is the employee actually knocks out the boss, and the boss stays knocked out. And it really is the boss who's pretending to be knocked out for the entire time. Yeah, yeah And yeah. he gets away with it because he doesn't lose his job. Exactly. <laughs> he keeps the belt. Well, we don't know what's going to happen next week. Oh, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Oh, but can I add on to that drama? Yeah. So then the fighter... Roman Reigns. Roman Reigns fought in order to defend his title and keep his job. Then when we were there, that fighter comes back out, and his persona is that he's the yes man for the boss. Yeah. And yeah. he brings... And he's like, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and he played, he started using all this bureaucratic speech, yeah. you know, which is like, you know, when the security guard tells you you have to leave, like, I'm sorry, I'm just following rules. Yes. You have to calm down now, sir. Just, just walk away. Well, he's doing all of that. And then he brings his security goons yes. with him. Because he can't make his fight his own battles, just like the capitalist dogs can't fight their own battles. And, of and course, the audience is screaming at him, yeah. you look stupid. Yeah. You look stupid. And, of course, Roman Reigns then proceeds to kick some serious butt on yeah. the security guards, taking down at least 12 of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the other guy leaves because there has to be drama and tension for next week, right? Yeah. They, they're they building up like the, the clash yeah. between Roman Reigns and Sheamus. Sheamus, right. Sheamus. And it's great because Sheamus just gets sort of pushed into this. It's like, that's not his character, but for this season, they decided they were going to make Sheamus be the yes man for the boss. Yeah, I really loved when it, people were chanting, you look stupid. Yeah. And, now, and then he points to his mohawk and says, you got to respect the mock. The hawk. <laughs> but my favorite character and moment was Rusev, who was <laughs> the Bulgarian wrestler who, um, who comes out. He's supposed to be from Bulgaria, and I, now I have to admit, I don't know what the Bulgarian flag looks like. I think that's the Bulgarian flag. Okay, so I assume maybe it was, but it doesn't even yeah, matter, no. right? He's foreign country, yeah. right? Like, Vaguely Russian, but not quite Russian. Eastern not quite. European, yeah. yeah. Giant dude, and he comes out 
they announce him, and you see this giant, all the graphics, like, go around the whole stadium with the flag, the colors of Bulgaria. And then he comes out, and everyone's booing, and he grabs the Bulgarian flag and just violently is, like, forcefully <laughs> waving it, like, no, you will you will respect me and my country, you know? <laughs> and he's got his um, Euro, Euro wife yes, right there. Yes, with yeah, the, Volga. Or- <laughs> yeah, with, like, the pulled-back blonde hair, and she's escorting him, and he's, like, kind of waving the flag at people, you know? <laughs> And then he gets in the ring, and it, his wrestling style was to stand there, like, in the at-ready position with his hands kind of up in the air, like, I'm going to grab you. <laughs> <laughs> but I love, like, the, this is, this is, like, part of why I was excited to go, is because of these villains that are, their whole thing is to go out and do something that gets the whole crowd to turn against them. And everyone kind of knows it's just for fun, but just egging people on, like, I dare you to like me, you know? (laughs) Who was the other fellow? Kind of a... Also a villain, but a completely different strategy, which was Bo, Bo Dallas, Bo, yes, who shows up in his intro video is the cheesiest video of like sunsets and puppies and kids learning how to ride a bike. But yeah, parents having a sit down <laughs> and the dove. You can't forget the dove. Yeah, the dove goes across the screen and it and in its trail it leaves the sparkling letters that say Bo leave. <laughs> Because it's sort of like in in his case, he's the most inspirational wrestler, right? yes. but also the most insincere wrestler. And so, because so, I was like, "What is his villain superpower?" It's like, "Oh, he's a Hallmark card." <laughs> Everybody really kind of hates Hallmark cards, and then you'd see him get mad and frustrated. I think part of the entertainment was seeing the inspiring guy kind of lose it, you know. <laughs> but then he'd come back and have his dumb smile, you know. <laughs> That guy was the best. Yeah, he was, was like, I, and part of that made me realize too that, like, I kept trying to read into like, okay, well, what's the point of having Bo Dallas? Like, what's that making fun of? What's Rusev making fun of? And what's the underlying message? Which I was totally overthinking it. It's just yes. satire. It's like yeah. satire of various different. Like, they have all the different characters in wrestling, and then mm-hmm. they're satirizing things yeah. in culture. But there isn't an underlying theme. It's just good guys, bad guys, some self-referential humor, and some poking fun at being t- too confident. You yeah. know, well, there's like a level you want to be confident, but then the the guy, the villains are too confident. Yes. you know, the the right. heroes are a little bit, a little modest, mm-hmm. or a little bit more reasonable. Like mm-hmm. Roman Reigns mm-hmm. is like, yeah, I did knock out my boss. Everyone's like, yeah, and he's like, but I don't recommend that you do it. <laughs> don't you don't do know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, don't do it at home. It's more not sincere, but, but modest. But they wear it like a light cloak. That yes. is, it's, yeah. it's not, there's nothing. There's no real moral message. There's no complexity to the villains or the characters. It's very. Uh, we're talking about like Punch and Judy, and and the sort of old fashioned puppet morality plays, in which it really wasn't about the character. It was about roles. Mm-hmm. It was about roles that people play. Every single season, who was the good person might end up being the bad person, and who's the bad person might end up being the good person. And you have to be able to wear it like a light cloak so you can actually transfer your allegiance. Yeah. Well, you can see they had you know some light messages yeah. probably geared towards the kids around fulfilling your dreams and <laughs> doing what you know, accomplishing your goals and all that stuff. There was uh, one of the advertisements that they had in between the fights was to go and vote on 
who which celebrity you thought was doing the the most good. Yes, was, and it was just like, oh, <laughs> isn't that sweet? Wrestlers that they, for good. Yeah, wrestlers for good. Who yeah. volunteered the best? Who did yeah. the you know the uh, greatest thing for puppies this year? Exactly. That kind of stuff. Yeah, and even like there were parts of Bo Leaves sort of persona and the other the other ones the three guys the, with the trombone um, oh the, the new the new the new, day. Day. The the new, new day. day yeah 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 well, their <laughs> intro video had a, a gospel choir these like lyrics about how we are going to win and we got to believe in ourselves yeah. and all this stuff and then and then it was like we are the privileged what <laughs> you know that was like the first hint that these guys were going to be a little bit of a twist or a yeah. joke and then when they come out, they're jokers, these yes. clowns that are sort of both saying, like, yes, you have to believe in yourself. We need to stand up and fight and do all these things you know, that are good and, and be positive. Yeah, their whole thing was about positivity, right? Yes. But they also made fun of it yeah. and made fun of themselves about it. But that message still sort of gets through. And, and they also had one of the biggest audience reactions. Yeah. I mean, the audience went wild when they came on. Yeah. But it's also it's the, they have to have this sort of lightness because they might get beat. And if you really mm. invest a lot of your attention, this is a person I really like and this is a person I really don't like, and then they get beat, then it's like, oh, that, that was terrible. And yeah. so you kind of have to be able to – that's why I think they kind of undercut. Like I could see a match in which Bo Leave actually beat – yeah, yeah, Jack yeah. Swagger. Yeah. And I wouldn't really be too distraught if that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There were, there were characters, though, that I think were just made to be beaten. Yes. Like, like the selfie stick guy. Yes. The, oh, yes. This guy that, like, wore feather boas and, like, his tights were all made of... Tyler. Um, Tyler. Yes. Yeah. Tyler something. But his tights were all Burberry. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> And he came out with a selfie stick and was yes. like taking pictures of himself and he had his girl with him and then he was getting preened beforehand and it's like, <laughs> that's the guy everyone yes. wants to see beat. And if he beats anyone, it's like this great, great shame. Exactly. You know? Gorgeous Tyler or Tyler Gorgeous. Or whatever and there have always been those like pretty yeah. boys. So yeah. it's like there's, there's these certain characters yeah. that the outsider. Yeah. They they unfortunately do a lot of things like the foreigners. Yes. Right? And then USA people. Right. USA. USA. Yeah, there, were, there was a, a, a not ironic USA chant while we were there. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe it was ironic, but I'm no pretty idea. sure but it I wasn't. Think it, I don't think it was ironic or not ironic. I think it was just performative. It's what you do. Yeah, yeah. Jack Swagger is going. You got to yell USA. Yeah. Exactly. On. Yeah. Yeah, so there, and then there's the overconfident person that doesn't have the ability to back it up, which yeah. is a Commedia dell'arte character, yeah. right? Um, the, these archetypes of characters. There's um, the, the the modest sort of good guy that that wants to do the right thing. There's Roman the, Reigns. Yeah, there's the ass kissing yeah. um, yes man. Shameless. There's the corporate stooge. You know, there's all these sort of different characters that you 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 get to see come head to head and. Act. Honestly, the I found the fighting part the most boring. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. I agree because I think person. it really is about theater. Yeah, now, and um, the and the trash talk yeah. and the grandstanding and the hamming it up like that's <laughs> that was the most fun. <laughs> but it's in, and it's a particular type of theater. So I'm like, I'm going to get all academic and wonky. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> there's like two ways of looking at this. There's a number of ways of looking at, it, but there's sort of two dominant ways in theater of thinking about 
what one does with these characters is sort of the classic Aristotelian model. The classic Aristotelian model is we're supposed to identify with the good folks, demonize the bad folks. And as the good folks go through their tragedies, we feel their tragedies. As they go through their victories, we go through their victories. And when they bleed, we bleed. And then we leave the theater and we're sort of purged of all of our emotions, right? Okay. And to do that well, you have to really be able to identify with the characters. And I think most movies are structured this way. You want to lose yourself into the drama Mm -hmm. and think you are that character for two hours. Then comes like Bertolt Brecht. And Bertolt Brecht is really freaked out. Bertolt Brecht's a radical German playwright writing between the wars. And he's really freaked out by this because he feels he's a political playwright. He's like, but if people identify with the characters on the stage, they're not going to actually want to do anything when they leave. I don't want people to, like, vanquish the boss on stage and then leave and feel like, well, I've already done that. I want to piss people off. And so they go out and vanquish the boss outside the theater. And so he had this whole theater of alienation approach in which essentially you were supposed to know that it was fake. And he had all of these tricks like announcing the end of the play at the beginning (laughs) and and having the theater hands come up on stage while people were there and move sets around so you never forgot that you were watching theater. And that's what professional wrestling is. Like you're (laughs) always constantly aware that this is theater. You don't have a cathartic moment. You have a moment of like, oh, this is a drama. I understand it. But I never become these characters. And I never like – feel out the characters. It's like, it's a spectacle we know is a spectacle, and it's still really fun to watch. It's a much more complicated theater. I mean, I never thought I'd say professional wrestling is like (laughs) avant-garde radical political theory, but it is. And it's a lot more popular than avant-garde radical theory. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think there were characters that you're meant to relate to. Uh, Maybe that's why the wrestlers are so diverse, because they want you to. But Kevin Owens, yeah. who is the the, mm. the last guy, yeah. fight Owen a fight. Yeah, who looked just like some Midwestern yeah. schlub. Yeah, but but what I'm saying is, you are going to identify with him. But there's enough other features in the whole oh, yeah. performance that keep you from identifying too much. Yeah, and I think there's and and the dramas too. I think yeah. you're supposed to relate to like everyone's felt like their yeah. boss was a jerk. Yeah, but I, I, there's a lot of things going on at once, mm-hmm. and I don't think. You leave in this Brechtian way where you're like, I'm going to go tell my boss right. you know, what's, what for. But I don't think it worked for Brecht either. Yeah. But, but it was a good theory. But yeah, and it's like serious and not at the same yeah. time. There, it's, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of mixes right. of things. I was going to say, I was, yeah, I was struck by the complexity within that room, right? So I was looking at the audience as we had a black fighter fighting a white fighter. There was, you know, there were black people who were rooting for the white fighter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like, really, in this political yeah. moment? Uh, <laughs> and right, so you had that complexity. And yeah, like you were saying, Stephen, they had so many diverse fighters come into the stage that there were opportunities for connections mm-hmm, uh, yeah. in different ways. And I also love what they did when the women wrestlers came on. Because they gave them their story arc went to the next level, right? So they had them, they did their fight, and uh, it was as dramatic as the guys and as fake. But then off the scene, they had uh, one of the women who was wrestling and then another wrestler who came in and intercepted her opponent so that she could win. 
And so she won the title. But afterwards, they had this back and forth uh, that we got to see on the screen where the uh, woman wrestler, and I'm sorry I forgot her name, who won, says to the woman who helped her, you you didn't let me do it on my own. You don't yeah. believe that I could do, you know, that I could win on my own. And the, wo- the woman who helped her was like, no, it's just I always have your back. I didn't <laughs> want to see you lose. I was like, this is great soap opera. Yeah. And it's also, yeah. <laughs> right, that is just so true to women's relationships. And it's something that you wouldn't see the guys do. But definitely in women's, uh, how women interact, it, it moved it to that level that it was just like, okay, Hey, they're they're understanding like the different sub audiences in this very large audience of of viewers that they get. So they're very easy. They can easily go into niche mm-hmm. uh, while appealing to popular as well. Okay, so now we we do the hard part. Yeah, which yeah, yeah. is like okay. So what as activists can we learn from SmackDown? And we need to because this is so popular. It incredibly this and it's is, been popular for literally hundreds of years and massively popular for the past fifty years. Mm-hmm. And it's in an arena every weekend. They have their own cable network that's all subscription based. Right. So it's not even on basic cable. Like you have to pay to get it. And they're doing multiple matches in arenas every week. And this is mm-hmm. an interracial working class audience. Yes. This, this is the future of socialism right here. Yeah, like if you took everyone in every Walmart they w- and put them in a stadium, <laughs> you'd have a wrestling audience. Right, exactly. So, so yeah, the, the stakes are high on this one. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I think also because it's been around so long and because it's so popular and because it's so commercial – it has to figure out how to appeal to all those kinds of people, which is why you have women wrestlers, which is why you have the Usos, which are like Polynesian, you know, yeah. like, and the, these very diverse um, characters and different character types right. that go from the fancy pretty boy to the working class Montana regular Joe that's like there. Right, then the, the references to the black church and the gospel yes. choir. Yeah. And all of this has evolved yeah. over time in order to meet the needs of such a large audience. Yeah. And so there really is a lot here. So the first thing that, can we, can we talk about what we want to avoid? Yeah, yeah, sure. Because <laughs> I, I, there's a lot I loved about this, but a lot of stuff I've been doing on my own lately has been looking at how we're, it's just happening in the United States a lot, this uh, sort of div- division of us and them, right? Mm-hmm. And that we're right and everything they say is wrong and like nowhere to meet in the middle. And the kind of tribalism and nationalism Mm. that's being talked about or or sort of even played with in the WWE is like, that's definitely not the direction we want to go. Right. But there is so much there to work with. do not want to go to war with Bulgaria. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I I was waiting. we don't want to make fun of outsiders, right? right? Like we want to welcome them in. Exactly. I mean, I was actually waiting and thank God it didn't happen for... The sort of the uh, Middle Eastern villain to make an appearance um, too close, too, too close. close. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think well, and I think it wouldn't have worked because it was too close. Right. It, it wasn't even a Russian villain; it was yeah. Bulgarian. I mean, yeah. Well, who was named Rusov? So. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> One of the things when we do popular cultures, there's certain things we can work with, and there's certain things we just do not want to work with. Yeah. What, what else do we not want to work with? Xenophobia, check. Yeah. <laughs> Or maybe we want to work with it, but that's not where we want to end up, right? I think maybe what I'm saying is 
these are okay. This is where we're starting, right? Mm-hmm. We can't mm-hmm. argue that this is where we're starting with because there's arenas full of people here that like this, and mm-hmm. that's where we're starting. That's not where we want to end up. Mm-hmm. Good point. I learned that from you. <laughs> not what we don't want to do. I'll start with what uh, some of my impressions were. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is just a relaxation again into not having to be perfect. Mm. And we haven't talked about all of the technical glitches yes. that happened. Le- it was part of it was just amateurish. Uh, there, you know, they had the wrong promos coming up. There were promos that uh, went into a loop like several times that should have yeah. been stopped. Um, Russo's flag didn't drop correctly. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. But then he ran with it. I love it. How he got, yes, how he got they improvised. Mad. Yeah. <laughs> That his flag didn't fall right. Right. So it's just like the the multi-millions of dollars that go into this production stage and that they were still having that level of complications. There that were pyrotechnics that seemed to yeah, fire at the wrong time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like all of a sudden there'd be fireworks. And it doesn't stop them from continuing to go on and the show kept going on. So I was just like, okay, I need to relax a little thinking that everything needs to be perfect yeah. into the team because the WWE can get away with people uh, participating with all that. Well, and that even goes down to the fights, too, because I thought they'd be much more realistic. But in fact, you could see them pull, you know, three inches from a face or things like that. And again, people were quite willing to forgive that as long as it played into the drama. Mm -hmm. The thing I thought was really useful was having a villain that everyone can hate that they know that's their role is to like be the bad guy. I think that's so powerful, right? Because you can and and to play with it and to have fun with it and to like make people laugh and like give them a chance to yell things at you or stuff. There's there's something there that can be Well, the thing that I was thinking of also that um as progressives, do we give up too easily on repetition for the new? And this was all repetitive. This was all staged, right? The audience knew it. They knew it. Um, but they were still, right? They were still doing the performance with all their gusto, right? So all of the wrestlers are in shape, right? And some of them are big guys, but they still have stamina. They're still performing. You know, they're taking the fakeness seriously and so they're coming with their all to that but it's also it's the same show every single week and i think a lot of times we tend to feel like we need to stop doing things and try something new but it's not really clear why we want to do that and should we be thinking more about how do we make what we do entertaining and and different like a different experience play into the game like yeah we know this is a protest <laughs> how are we gonna, right let's just accept that how do we want to do it better how do we want to do it differently i love that i mean because a lot of the times in these podcasts we've been talking about how to get around the three-word chant or how to get around the march rally model and what i like you're saying is it's there's something comforting about that and so let's play with it because that's what's important there is that they're not taking it entirely seriously. Like going back to what Steve said about it gives us a character to hate, but to hate lightly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that yeah. that, and that I think that's the key is that we can hate that character lightly, know that we don't really hate them, but have 
that fun experience. Um, and I think about like activist groups that have done this sort of quite well, like the billionaires for Bush. Is they create these characters. They pretend that they're billionaires, people of wealth, <laughs> who are campaigning for politicians and you know, will have slogans like uh, – It's a class war and we're winning. Yeah, it's a class <laughs> war and we're winning or things like that. But everybody knows that they're not really billionaires. But it doesn't take away from the fun. And I think that that's, that's the thing that I really – the real takeaway from it is that you can really get fully invested in jeering a villain. You can get fully invested in a form of protest that looks like every other protest. But it changes when you know it's a game mm-hmm. yeah. and when you know it's just all performative. You, it still works the same in some ways, but it doesn't have this investment. Yeah. There's something else I think that, uh, like billionaires for Bush, making fun of billionaires is pretty easy, but there's a sacredness around uh, you wouldn't make, or it just wouldn't be cool to make a sort of villain character that was modeled after the black block, which are these like very hardcore. Oh, I think it'd be awesome. It would that. be awesome, <laughs> but like it'd be like no, you know, you really can't. Um, we're all on the same side here, you know, or something like that. I don't, I don't yeah. know. I think it would be um, seen as sacrilege, right? Like we have a sort of sense right. of sacredness about um, certain or seriousness that wrestling doesn't have. They make fun of everyone. Right. At some point. And I think if you were to turn a villain into like, so say you had a sort of campaign or an action, but you had this villain or um, someone that needed to be stopped that was too far on the left, it would get sensitive mm-hmm. when, in fact, it really could be fun. Oh, and it could so. be super fun to have these these characters that would take some of the seriousness out of it in a way that could be helpful because it would be more sustaining. Look behind you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's, I was part of a group called the Absurd Response to an Absurd War um, <laughs> during the first Gulf War. And that, basically we took on this sort of persona of these absurd protesters. And so the, the sign that I was just pointing to was God bless hysteria. <laughs> it, was, it was one of the signs that we had. And I think that, that we did that purposefully because we felt like what was happening with the anti-war movement was it was collapsing back into its own earnest seriousness and that what was missing from this is the absolute absurdity of this war that was launched for completely crazy purposes and we didn't want to dignify it by taking it seriously. And so we kind of played with the very idea of a protester in order to tweak the left a bit. And I'm not saying in any way that this is what pro wrestling is doing, but, you know, this makes me think that we tend not to trust our audiences and participants enough. And yes. what we want to do is teach them yeah. rather than offer opportunities for them to learn. So I think when we think of ways to interact, it's like comedy is something that we don't do because we want to be in control of the message more. And yeah. we're afraid of what people will do if we give them satire, if we give them something that can be interpreted in many different ways. But we don't also trust people enough to play with you know, play with their prejudice, play with their um, xenophobia, play with their sexism in a way to exercise that 
and you know grow and learn uh, mm-hmm. for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking right. of street theater things I've seen where there are heroes and villains, but they don't play with it the same way that wrestling does. The heroes are always the farm workers. The villains are the, the owners. <laughs> the villains right? are really villains, like really villains. And yeah. So there's no yeah there's no play at all. Yeah. And so like, what if you had this? Uh, the heroes, of course, would still be the farm workers, and the villains, of course, would be the corporate things. But then you had this like hippie protester contingent that's a that's gonna come screw it up and it's like no no stop get out of there you know yeah. <laughs> exactly or the villain could turn out to be the hero or the, i mean there's all yeah, sorts of ways yeah, that yeah, you, yeah. because mm-hmm. that's something you said you know pat just really said is like the trusting of the audience is that that was a really sophisticated audience of seven-year-olds there <laughs> because they they get the most fundamental thing which is the slippage between reality and fantasy, they don't ever think it's reality. They know it's mm-hmm. fantasy, yet they're enjoying it as reality. But if yeah. you ask them, is it real? They'd say, no, no, it's, it's fake. Mm-hmm. And there's another nice sophisticated thing that happens, too, which is good guys become bad guys. Mm-hmm. Or you know, like the New Day comes out. I'm sure when the New Day first came out, maybe they were serious about their message of positivity. And then over time, they could be, they've started to play with it. And maybe in a few months, they will be sort of villains of yes. positivity, mm-hmm. right? And that there, there can be this complexity that people aren't wholly, even in wrestling, aren't wholly good or wholly bad. And in our campaigns, we tend to paint people as wholly good or wholly bad because we think that they can't, you know, it's too complex a message or like, why confuse it? We're trying to win something here, you know? Right. And I was also thinking, so last night when the women wrestlers came on, uh, I was like holding my breath at first, just waiting to see what the audience reaction mm-hmm, would mm-hmm, be and mm-hmm. if there would be catcalling right. or anything. And there was none wow. of that. And I saw especially the young women who were there were just like standing up and cheering and like really um, excited. And then there was a woman wrestler who they showed a promo for who wasn't fighting that day, but a big part of the audience just started shouting her name. We want to see Sasha. We want to see Sasha. Um, And, right, I'm sure that that was not the reaction in the 1980s. I can imagine Mm -hmm. (laughs) that it wasn't as as accepting of these women as individuals and uh, wrestlers in their own right. But I can imagine how that has evolved and changed mm-hmm. with the larger cultures changing as well and, and uh, having that impact. Because, again, it was, I mean, it was a mixed audience, but it was mostly males, uh, mostly men and boys in that room last night. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, I'm sure if we went 50 years ago, we would go to black wrestling and we would go to white wrestling. We wouldn't see the interracial. And we would go to Mexican wrestling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my favorite with the Lucha Dragons, who are... Mexican, but also doing sort of, you know, Chinese kung fu moves. I mean, it's just this sort of great polyglot world um, of wrestling. What you're waiting for are these big jump flying, you know, flips and stuff. And it's rather impressive to see in real life. And I think thinking about performances that are dynamic that way, that sort of ebb and flow, so that when you do a big flying kick or a Superman punch that it is uh, dramatic instead of just showing everything at once or just doing your best stuff, playing with the audience, knowing what they want and teasing it out. I'm curious if we've learned anything or have suggestions around how to do multi-platform events. Like, as we yeah, were saying, yeah. the the actual being in the audience watching the fight, 
is not as exciting as the television production of it. And is there something around protest or meetings or policy decisions that we can think about uh, a way of being in the moment with the people who are the biggest fans of it and then how to project that out to a larger audience to make them feel like they're part of it, but it has to be more exciting than the actual experience. Yeah, because I think that that wasn't the case in what we saw. Is mm-hmm. it actually much more exciting on TV? I think that's a tough one, and I think that actually we're we, in some ways we're moving. I've noticed in protests and in um, uh, demonstrations and what have you, we're moving towards the opposite direction. What we're doing. I just did this action two weeks ago with. 300-pound blocks of ice and uh, pushing them around for climate change down in Washington Square Park. And if you watched it, it looked ridiculous <laughs> because it was all done for a camera that was, you know, 150 yards away with a telephoto lens. Yeah. And it was, the, you know, we don't want to get caught in the trap of we're always performing for the mediated audience, the people will see it. On the other hand, that's a much bigger audience. And so you're right. It's like how do you do both of them? So it's satisfying for the people that are there. And satisfying for the distant audience. I don't know. Well, or, you know, accept the idea that, okay, we all know some of this is fake. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. So, like, <laughs> that's it. For the people that yeah. are in person, it's like, look, you're here <laughs> as part of the, uh, yes. the audience. And what we're trying to do is make this video. So here's the camera. Like, we're going to try to make this video look as good as possible. Get in on it. You yeah, know? Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. exactly it. Because everybody understands in a way that that's fun, too. And you got an idea that one of the reasons people were there is because they wanted to be part of the show, which then they're going to go back and watch on TV. And just to reveal that, Mm -hmm. uh, we know know this isn't true. Yeah. I want to bring up one more thing about tribalism. And I think that professional (laughs) – it's going to go down in history. (laughs) I think professional wrestling teaches us how to live as a diverse society. (laughs) Wow. Go on. Because, <laughs> I, I, no, I need an explanation. Especially in this moment in history of xenophobia, the moment of Black Lives Matters, in which we're really trying to struggle as a country. Like, well, what does it mean to be different and part of a country? Um, immigration, migration, and so on. They don't deny difference in wrestling. But they don't take it very seriously either. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Seamus, the Irish guy, has Seamus 515. <laughs> But then he plays a villain, and then he doesn't play a villain. And then you have, you know, Russo, who playing the Bulgarian, but sometimes he's a good guy when he came in with the other international oh, folks. Yeah, and so yeah. everybody understands, okay, so you're Bulgarian, you're, you know, Filipino, and you, you perform it. But it's not quite real, and so everybody just understands the performance, so it's not as serious. It's mm. not taken as seriously. So it's a, it's a way of holding on to our differences and saying mm-hmm. we all are different, but also understanding that it's just a performance in a lot of ways. <laughs> mm. And we can accept it as such. Okay, it wasn't that profound. But in any case, there's a seed yeah, of it's something. profound in its simplicity. <laughs> <laughs> so we keep kind of talking about this villain, not taking seriously thing. I, the, another thing I think is good and maybe something for us to take away as a for people that are organizing actions, right, or, or in leadership positions. Vince McMahon, the guy who is in charge, the, the best-known person in charge of WWE, is willing to be knocked out on stage and be sort of ma- both make a fool of himself and, and be seen as a cheater, yeah. right? This, this guy that does underhanded deals. And they literally show him 
pulling the ref out of the match <laughs> and like talking in his ear. And he's like, no, this guy has to win and stuff like that. Right. These are things in wrestling, which you would think is like, no, no, you don't want to ever sort of show that it's fake, especially as the COO. Right. Right. But he's willing to do it, willing to do it on television, willing to be punched in the face and lay there knocked out for several minutes and make himself a character that is a villain. So the story can move forward. And I'm not even sure I would be willing to do that. It's, It's potentially embarrassing, but it works for what they're trying to do. And that's what I was saying before about, like, there's power in playing the role of the villain. There's power there. And it takes it takes a, a level of confidence and security to be able to put yourself in that position. But And when he, when he shows himself as this sort of evil boss, it gets everyone into it, right? And so he's actually raising the stakes of the match and getting everyone excited by, by willing to sort of I don't want to go so far as to say make himself vulnerable, but maybe something like that, right? Are we willing to do that? And I think that's, that's my takeaway from this is about the power of playing a role. Yeah. That so oftentimes we think about authenticity. Yes. That yes. we have to express exactly who we are and that performance is some sort of fakery. Mm-hmm. And this, it's so obviously fakery that it actually is kind of brings a new level of truth and, uh, and a power in that. And it's to say, you can be who you perform yourself to be. And it takes away the weight of it all because then it's a, it's a role versus a role. And it doesn't get personal. It allows you to shift roles, allows you to put on a different role. And it just makes you look at the world in a much more fluid and I think really productive and playful way. Mm-hmm. Like I could imagine somebody in front of a big crowd of people saying like, you know, we've, we've all come together here to like call a strike for this or that. But, you know, I'm, I've, I've been thinking about it. I think I think maybe we should call it off. You know, <laughs> no, no, listen, they said they are willing to do this. No, no. isn't that enough? Isn't no that enough? I like to do that kind of thing. And then someone will come out and tackle you. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, you know, to, to play with that in order to sort of it would be fun again. It gives like instead of just yelling at the crowd like, hey, this is what you're here to do. This we're we're demanding this. Do you want it? Yes, you know. That's good, I guess. But like having some fun with it and bringing in a little bit of drama, a little bit of play, like mm-hmm. can can realiven it so much, you know. Well, I think we could keep talking about wrestling for like another hour. There, it's so rich. There's so much there. But what I would encourage people to do is, it's on every twice a week. Just find <laughs> yes. it on TV and watch some for yourself and what I've done in the past is I watch it for like two minutes and I'm like eh whatever this is boring watch it for an hour yeah, stay with it yeah get yeah. into it wrap your head around it and like it. look up some of the yeah. characters look up what they've been doing look into some of the backstory but you know don't just sit there and eat potato chips like think about how you can apply some of this stuff and, and these while are while you're things, eating potato chips <laughs> yeah 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 these are things that you don't need us for if you watch this stuff the ideas will come and yeah. we encourage you to do that so, this is our 10th episode. We've got, I got a letter. I've got a special letter from a big fan. Ooh. So, this is from Joe Mackay. Joe Mackay is a colleague of mine. He actually fed some of these ideas. This wrestling thing might have come from him. 
But he, he's a big fan, but he has some criticism. Okay. okay. Our, our best fan. So he says, love the podcast, blah, 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 at the first. All right. And then he says, I just listened to the Minecraft episode. You broke your own rule. You have to participate. And you listened to the top five hits. You got your nails done, but you didn't actually play Minecraft. That's true. That is true. And he goes on to make this point that it's really important to actually do these things. And that a lot of people who, especially with video games, criticize video games, don't play them. And they look at them from the outside and they say, this is foolish or this is childish. And he said, also, we totally missed out because the first two hours of Minecraft and Survivor Mode is among his favorite game playing experiences. It's (laughs) super fun. But he said when people write about games and game culture, um, you know, you can't be a film critic without actually watching films. You know, if we just gave you a plot summary or someone told you about it, it's not the same thing. So, um, fair enough, Joe. That is fair. A criticism yeah. well yeah. taken. Oh, Never no, I, again. I do have a bloodline relationship to the players. <laughs> yeah. He did say your kids are cute. Uh, so, if you want to listen to the Minecraft episode, I think it's number six. We'll put it in the show notes. The show notes are at artisticactivism.org slash podcast. And then you'll find the one for this wrestling episode and for all the other episodes. Oh, the other thing he said is that the guy that developed Minecraft, this is sort of interesting in a, mm-hmm. another way was very involved and it was a very sort of open process where people would make suggestions he would communicate with them it would he would blog about the process and he was very open and honest about it and he said gamers were being shown how the sausage was made in a way that most companies would never allow but as the community grew and the game succeeded decisions he was making were criticized more vocally and his casual and honest blog post didn't scale well because people felt they could respond in the same manner so as it scaled up, people got mad and they they voiced their displeasure. And so part of the reason he sold it to Microsoft was not just for the money, but he was just tired of dealing with these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Joe's question is, and this is this or more of a challenge to us, this the developer got totally burned out, totally disengaged from the game and the community by the time of the sale, and he's publicly said he would never build a game the same way again. As a fan of Minecraft, especially in the early days, this is discouraging. But what are the lessons we can take from this? Mm. I think it's about boundaries. Well, boundary. I also think it's about that, that things change as they grow bigger. And you have to be willing to change and not try to run a small organization or a small company. As a small company, as it's bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one. Uh, what comes to me is... I mean, just the way that uh, Joe is describing this, it's described more as the developer and the audience. And I'm wondering to what extent he had his own team of support rather than feeling alone and isolated. Mm. Because, you know, right, we're all going to get criticized. And I can see we all have experiences where members get on our nerves and we want to throw Either throw them under a bus, throw us under the bus. Um, And that's right, that's part of human interactions that people will piss you off. And how do we kind of support ourselves and, you know, during that process? But yeah, I would be curious as to how much that developer had his own team of people who were understood what it meant to put that together mm-hmm. uh, and how and the difficulties of it. Even someone helped with the translation to the community. So how mm-hmm. much was that uh, effective in getting in his head what he w- wanted to do, what was looking to do, and being able to, ex- to express that to people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure if this would work, but this is something that I've done. I said boundaries before. There's certain things like... 
if I'm working on a project that are open to discussion, there's others that aren't, right? Okay, well, that's a great idea, and that's a different project. Mm-hmm. And if you think that's how it should happen, you should do it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not doing that. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's one. And then the another thing is creating hurdles for people to complain. Mm-hmm. So if it's if if someone can just send an email and toss out a like something that could be really disruptive and the the response or the reaction to that involves a lot more work than it would take to send an email then that balance is off right mm-hmm. so if you're going to say or or um, offer some kind of criticism that could be really disruptive to the group that you have to it's got to take an equal amount of work to mm-hmm. make that complaint or you know what i mean so you have to do it in person or you have to like call a bunch of people and see what they think, put together a proposal and then bring it to the group. Right. And if you're not willing to do that, then maybe you don't care. Right. And that's what bothers me a lot about organizing online sometimes is it's just really easy to say, hey, um, are our goals right here and sort of disrupt the whole thing instead of going around to everyone and saying, I've been thinking a lot about this. Like, can we meet for coffee? Mm-hmm. Which would right. take more time and ultimately more investment in order to do that. And so if you're in the uh, leadership position, like creating a structure where if people, they want to, or if there needs to be some sort of challenge to the way things are working, that can happen, but it's not an easy thing to do. Right. I was going to, uh, say that around uh, form, yeah, matters in these conversations, and it right, it's relationship building, and it just takes so much time to deal with disagreement. You know, I always say, if you want to praise someone, do it in email, do it in tweet. If you want to disagree <laughs> with someone, call them up, yeah. have a conversation because it does right. It matters more. I had a political disagreement with my youngest daughter. And I won't go into the details of it, but it was funny because it took us a day and a half to actually have conversation and get through mm-hmm. to it to see where we agreed. And But yeah, that just took so much work yeah. uh, in order to get through that. And also, right at, at one point, I did have to say to her, just assume that my intentions are, <laughs> are good. You know me. <laughs> She's Principle like, of charity. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I have a thing (laughs) like I don't encourage students to walk into my office and like make an appointment Mm -hmm. because if they're not willing to make an appointment, it's probably not that important. So Minecraft developer, you know, like make make an appointment. (laughs) 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 Solved it. Okay, so um, I'll start for my thing this week is a show I found on YouTube accidentally searching for something else called Lip Sync Challenge with LL Cool J. Nice. I think that's what it's called. I'll find out and we'll put it in the notes. But the premise of the show is it's like, you know, a competition sort of singing kind of show, except people aren't singing and the, and it's celebrities. So you have these celebrities that choose a song and then they have to do a lip sync performance. It usually involves a bunch of dancers. And then LL Cool J sits at a bar off to the side and um, cheers you on and introduces you and stuff. I don't know why... But it is fascinating. I ended up watching several of them with uh, my significant special lady friend partner. And she's like, this is so much better when they, than when they actually sing. And there's a lot of like joking around in it. How you can use it for your work in creative activism, I'm not sure yet. But I would say it's worth watching. So Lip Sync Challenge with LL Cool J 
on some weird basic cable channel near you. So I will use this time to talk about my big three, which is Christmas. Ah. <laughs> it's the biggest pop culture holiday of the year. Good point. Um, and I still remember in uh, junior high school when our teacher asked us if we thought Christmas was celebrated by the majority of people on the planet and was just so astounded when we learned that no it was not what do you mean (laughs) and we had you know we had jewish kids in the school and we had jehovah's witness but the idea that christmas and christians were not the norm Ah. i remember that being just an eye-opening experience but i love christmas i love uh this time of year i love new york and christmas from the holidays Mm. and the 70 degree weather is kind of throwing me <laughs> off my game yeah. right now. But I, I look forward to this time of year. I love the slowdown. I love the, yeah, the just opportunities to be grateful. So, Christmas. so can I ask a controversial question? Sure. Which side of this are you on? Christ in Christmas or Christ out of Christmas? Ooh. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm for the Grinch out of Christmas. Thank you. <laughs> I do want to make keep the Christ out of Christmas bumper stickers because there aren't any. There's only put the Christ back in Christmas. Well, I mean, the funny thing is, speaking as a Christian, Christmas is not a big deal. It, it's basically it's a pagan holiday. You know, yes. it's, it's a way to colonize all these pagans. It's like, ah, you got this winter holiday. You smear blood on trees. We can do something with trees. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Easter is the big holiday for Christians, but they kind of adopted this thing called Christmas. Nobody knows when Jesus was born. I mean, come on, <laughs> let's face it. Ultimately, it's a birthday party. It's, it's a birthday <laughs> even a Julian calendar? No. I mean, that comes later. So, I mean, so the whole thing is, is you know, so let's just... Let's just bring the Christ out of Christmas. Stick him where he belongs. So you're on Christ out of Christmas. Give him Easter. And, Are you being and, the villain? Give him Easter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the important one. Actually, it should be – there's other important things that you know, Jesus did at different times. Yeah. Like, you know, like standing up to Pontius Pilate Day. <laughs> you know, what would that be? I have no idea. See, that's the problem. Yeah. yeah. What day did that happen? No, I have no the idea. That's, that's the problem. <laughs> March 12th. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I actually have not a best pop culture moment, but sort of a worst pop culture moment. Oh, yeah. this is new. So, yeah. So um, I went out with my son to buy a gun. What, like a Nerf gun? No, like a real gun. Really? Yeah. For you? No, for both, for us. We, we In New York City? Well, did no, you have to go to yeah, Texas? You have, you, have, you have to go. No, you have to go out of New York City. Okay, so um, you went with your son to buy an assault rifle. No, no. See, this is the, this is the problem, and this a is this is what's you no, not a handgun, handgun not a, a twenty-two a rifle. Because okay. I grew up shooting a gun. He wants to shoot a gun. He wanted an airsoft gun, and I said, absolutely not. I'm I don't not. know what that is. It's like a gun where you can shoot at other people, and I said, you can't. Uh-huh. I'm not going to buy you a gun. You can shoot at other people. I will buy you a gun that if you shoot at someone, you will kill someone. And we will take safety courses and, you know, we're going to shoot on a rifle range. And we bought, you know, a Ruger 1022 kick-ass gun, right? Where is it? It's, it's In your apartment in New York City? <laughs> with, with many locks on it. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, so, Wait, and you live in a tower. I just want to say, well, you, are, you are a man with a rifle who lives in a tower. Go on. <laughs> you should think about that. <laughs> exactly. Steve, uh, I'm outside your apartment. Let me in. 
<laughs> no, okay, wait, wait. Let me get to the depressing part. When bought a gun? When I bought a gun, when I was, you know, at age, you went to a sporting goods store, and there was the fishing tackle, there was the 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 rifles, and there was a shotgun, there was hunting rifles, and they would talk to you about like target shooting and so on. And so that was my idea of what buying a gun was going to be like. Yeah. We went to a sporting goods store in Long Island. You should have done a whole separate podcast just for this. It was, <laughs> and it was one of the most depressing experiences I've ever had because Why? there was a line of people buying guns. The only thing they were asking is about what you could use to deter predators. Not, and we're not talking about animal predators. We're not talking about <laughs> human. So what they're selling is assault shotguns and AR, um, AR-15s. And this idea that someone would come and buy a twenty two or buy a hunting rifle to actually go kill a deer or a shotgun to actually, like, you know, kill a pheasant was off the radar. It was all about assault rifles and handguns and housewives buying handguns. And it was just fearful people. It was Where, really— This is in New York City? This is in Long Island. Long Island. Um, you can't really buy a gun in New York City. Yeah. Um, and it was— it left a horrible feeling. And both me and my son were just like, this is freaky. And the guy, you know, uh, Sydney said, well, what kind of magazine can we get? And he goes, well, our governor only allows us to get 10. And that Obama. <laughs> and, I, and, and I was like, what? And he's like, you know, Obama's going to do this. And I was like, hey, gun sales. He's like, yeah, they've been up since Obama got president. I'm like, you should be voting for Obama. And he's like, no, I'm not going to vote for Obama. But then they said to my son, they said, yeah, this is a good gun to get. Next one will be an AR-15. And I'm like, no, no. There's like hunting rifles. There's target rifles. Then there's like rifles used to kill people. And it used to be different. Huh. It was so That is depressing. Depressing. So wait, do you not need a license? or No, not to buy a rifle. Um, you have to buy, to buy an automatic rifle like an AR-15 or a handgun you do. But not, not to buy a shotgun or to buy a, um, a hunting rifle. And uh, They make it sound like you have to have a... Well, a blood test. Both, uh, yeah, there's two sort of right. rumors. One is that yeah, you have to um, be <laughs> right. genetically tested and thumbprinted and everything to right. get any gun. And then the other thing uh, is that like you just go somewhere and pick it up. Right. Well, I think it's probably unfortunately more the latter. Huh. And you know, I mean, people don't go on rampages with Ruger ten twenty two eight shot twenty two rifles. Yeah. You know they, but it was about killing people. It wasn't about hunting, and it wasn't about target shooting. It was about killing people, and that is really, really depressing. Well, I, I would say it sounds more like it wasn't really about killing people, about being feeling safe. Yeah. Well, that's the positive spin about it, yes. And we can yeah. work with the feeling safe. We can't work with the killing people. No. There is a radio lab I heard, which I could put in the show notes, called the Rhino Hunter, that was about – they followed this guy that uh, – paid $300,000 yeah. to kill a uh, black rhino, yeah. which is an endangered species, which at first you're thinking, what a horrible person. And by the end, it's a lot more complex, worth listening to. So this is episode number 10, and we're going to take a little break for a while. So thank you for listening. If you have feedback, you can contact us through the artisticactivism.org site on our contact page. Um, if you have requests, if you want to, uh, in the future, see us go do some popular thing, let us know. If you've just appreciated these last 10, we like hearing that too. And we'll come back someday. We'll see when we have a nice list of new things to do. And thank you for listening. Yes. Thank you. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Bye. Bye.
Jesus.